Welcome back to Film Baby Film, the podcast for people who love movies. My name is John Lavager, and I'm the host, and I'm joined today by Becky Dan and Dave Eves to discuss Ingmar Bergman's Passion of Anna. Um, so we recorded this episode a few weeks ago. I'm just getting to it, uh, uploading it now. A bunch of things happened. I had to move during quarantine. The nation shut down. I uh, had, a, had a couple of weeks where I was working long hours on behalf of my on behalf of my employer, I'm very fortunate my employer is pretty stable for the moment, and I know there's been a lot of economic turmoil, so fortunately I haven't had to deal with that, but a lot's been going on. Uh, I have to tell you, uh, re-listening to this conversation, which is wonderful, I wonder how much different it would be, this discussion would be, in light of everything that's going on now. This is one of Bergman's films that, as Becky Deanna points out a few times, has as a background this sort of amorphous, uh, ambiguous evil or this evil that's like underneath the surface or is in the background uh, that you really can't put your finger on. I mean, there are obvious examples and instances of evil, but there's something permeating the environment of this film. And I wonder how much different the conversation would be if we had it now, if we had had it a couple of weeks ago uh, in light of everything that's going on. I don't know. But what I can say is this is a wonderful discussion. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think, you know, you got a couple of hours to kill now. Uh, you got plenty of time to listen to a long podcast about a wonderful film, and that's what I'm giving to you. Um, Becky Dan and Dave Eves are, you know, pretty well recognized in my film circles as being gr- great experts on Bergman. So it's wonderful to have them on to discuss Passion of Anna. Without further ado, this film, baby film, Passion of Anna. Let's do this. Travis was one of the first uh, guests on this show, and we went deep into, um, was it Smi- oh, Summer with Monica? Oh, I remember Wasn't, that I thought one. the first one was like the Stories of Women one. Oh, yeah. Well, we also did, I think I think it was called- What's was that one called? Secrets it's like the of Women? One. Yeah, Secrets of Women. It's the anthology Bergman. Which he and I just gushed over because that was such a surprise. Nobody talks about Secrets of Women, and then we saw it, and we're like, holy crap, this movie is so- this movie is so prophetic of what Bergman was eventually going to become. Why doesn't mm-hmm. anybody talk about it? I need to see it? that movie and just... again. And actually, because um, um, Aaron West is talking about maybe doing like a box set, another box set episode. And I'm like, fuck. So now I have to rewatch some of these. But there's some movies that yeah. I've only seen once. And I haven't seen in like 20 years. And that's one of them. And that's one that's been on my radar because... I remember it sort of and I've just and I know it's like you loved it and you revisited it recently. So it's it's one that that's like one of the ones I'm looking forward again to rewatching because I haven't seen it in so long. There are some that I still have not seen yet. Uh, I've been trying to tell myself I need to go through this box set in proper order, but I don't think I'm going to have time to watch all f- like 39 films oh, yeah, I won't. in time for for this podcast. So I'm going to just go out there and watch uh, Ship to India. And the two Pharaoh documents and, uh, yeah, catch up on some of the ones like Secrets of Women, which I honestly forgot existed until 
you mentioned podcasting with Travis. Like, oh yeah, that's that movie. It's good. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. I think I'm gonna re- I'm gonna rewatch the ones that I haven't seen in like 20 years um, mm-hmm. that I don't remember that well. Uh, I'm gonna do it that way because I I don't ha- I don't have time either, you know, to re to go through the whole thing in order. Although I'm going to blame John right now on getting me stuck on Bergman again, because uh, after I watched um, The Passion of Anna, that's the one we're talking about. I, I'm already losing my mind here. I, I was like, I need to watch another movie, but I just want to watch more Bergman. So I put on Cries and Whispers the other night at like 2 a.m. Oh, nice. Of course you did. Of course you did, Dave. That's like the most Dave Eves <laughs> move there is, is, to put on Cries and Whispers at 2 a.m. in the morning. It's to lull myself to sleep with... with <laughs> Wonderful sounds and images. I was just thinking about how the time John had said you guys were going to do Cries and Whispers episode and then he's like, yeah, I can't do this. And you guys change it to Hour of the Wolf. And then I was thinking, I'm like, I wonder if this is going to happen to this Passion of Anna episode. I wonder if someone's going to be like, you know what? This 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 episode, this movie's a little too experimental. (laughs) But yeah, guys, can we just change this to a Cries and Whispers episode? (laughs) (laughs) We'll do it right now. No, I love Passion of Anna. I am... I think, did we ever talk about this, Dave, where I basically said, I don't understand why you like Cries and Whispers so much. I think that yep. in terms of Bergman, like his experimental color films, I think that this is significantly better. And We I'm, are going to have to talk about that. That is some podcasting material right then yeah. and there. No, I definitely, we ended our Hour of the Wolf episode with, with a plea from me to give Cries and Whispers another chance. Yeah, I just I remember I remember the first time I saw it just thinking, wow, this is it, in a lot of ways it feels like persona if persona had been done with a man and a woman rather than two women. Um the use of color like uh uh Sven Nikvist and that lighting in the scene with BB Anderson. Um the oh gosh, the the fact that this movie connects directly to shame with the black and white dream sequence. The ending, like, there's just so many things about this movie that I find remarkable, whereas Cries and Whispers is just, it's, it's really difficult for me. It's, like, it's really hard for me to, to, uh, to get into that movie. I will save my thoughts on Passion of Anna for the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. You think we're not podcasting yet. I find that, I know. that's very charming. I felt like- this is true. This is true. No, I, I, I don't want to give it all away at the beginning, but I will say that there's one thing I will definitely only say nice things about in this movie, and it is the cinematography. <laughs> Sven Nyfquist did a wonderful job. And for some reason, I, I had had it in my brain that this was shot on 16 millimeter. I think I had watched a... Uh, uh, I, I think I had watched a like YouTube documentary. Not documentary. It was something that was shot back in like 1969 or the 70s uh, during the making of this. And... Uh, for some reason, I thought they had said it was shot on 16 millimeter, and it's definitely very grainy, but I'm pretty sure it was shot on 35 millimeter with maybe like a lower grade, and it adds to everything that's going on in this movie. I, had this been shot on 16 millimeter, I think it would have been the same exact effect, same exact color, but uh, it was 35. That's that's a a weird little discretion, not, not discretion, little, little dive, uh, tangent there for me for thinking it was one thing when it was not. Well, no, your digression is relevant because part of it is they had like a goal for the color scheme mm-hmm. and it was off. And so they, they tinkered a little bit and post edit with, um, I think, exposing the film a little mm-hmm. bit longer. Mm-hmm. But then the flip side of it is 
um, there's a heavy, and again, this connects directly to Persona, heavy usage of like uh, an optical printer. Yeah. And obviously, like it's subtle, it's more subtle during most of the film, but I think it becomes very obvious when you get to the ending. But yes. what a, what an odd place to start. Let's not start with the ending. Let's start mm-hmm. with the start. So um, uh, just in case anybody was unaware, you are listening to Film Baby Film. <laughs> And I'm joined by Dave Eves and Becky DeAnna. Say hello, everybody. Hello. Hello, everybody. Um, so I think the way that we want to kick this off is, uh, so Becky and Dave, both of you guys have been on the podcast before talking about Bergman. Uh, why don't we just go in order and just quickly reintroduce yourselves, and then we'll launch right into discussing, discussing the movie we want to talk about today, Passion of Anna, uh, or A Passion, um, if you are British. And so or L18. Two, if you're Igmar Bergman. <laughs> if you're Sphinx Film Industry, wow. uh, L182, yes. This is like uh, Becky, uh, the, star, the, the Star Trek. Star date, you're going to get really uh, technical. Star date, L182. My name is Andreas Finkelvoss. <laughs> <laughs> and I am repairing the roof of my cottage. Yes. Becky, why don't you introduce yourself um, and, and uh, why you're on the episode? Yeah, uh, I'm Becky Deanna. I um, have been studying and watching Bergman movies since 2001, uh, so uh, 19 years. And uh, he's a he's my favorite film director. He's changed my life. Um, I've written a lot about him. I've podcasted on him quite a lot. Um, I think three past episodes from Film Maybe Film. So we did uh, we did a Winter Light versus. Uh, um, first reformed episode we did a shame episode and we did a seven seal episode um, and then I've done about I think and I, I I neglected to add these up before the episode but I think we've done like at least 10 episodes with Dave Eves for wrong real covering Igmar Bergman um, and so I came to you guys and said I, I because we did the shame episode on film baby film John and um, it's such an extraordinary film and Passion of Anna is really seems like a direct sequel in a way or has a lot of similar DNA. And I thought it'd be cool to tackle Passion of Anna. So I came to you two and, and asked if, if we could do that. Wonderful. Dave? I'm Dave. Uh, I can't say no to podcasting about Berkman, <laughs> as evidenced by the number of episodes about Berkman I have done with Becky here. John, we've done quite a few. We, we, oh, hold on. We did uh, Sawdust and Tinsel. Do we do anything between that and Hour and the Wolf? I don't think so. No, I think it I don't was think just so. Straight to Hour of Wolf. Yeah, we didn't do Cries and Whispers. Uh, no, definitely <laughs> famously, not. Famously, and uh, it, it's. I think it's fitting that now we have the whole gang together because Hour and the Wolf, Shame and Passion of Anna are part of an unofficial trilogy. Something that Bergman probably wouldn't have called a trilogy, but was kind of turned into that by critics and by perception later. Because I, I mean, in all three of these films, you have Max von Sydow and Liv Ullman portraying a couple whose lives are interrupted by violence. So it certainly makes sense to kind of pair all of these together. So for those of you who are out there that want to listen, uh, Becky and John's episode on shame is fantastic. Uh, our episode on Hour of the Wolf is good, but not as good because Becky's not there. Aww, and this one great. is <laughs> this one's going to be the best because you got all of us here. You know what? I just so, totally uh, forgot that we did that music episode together where we covered three films on Film Baby Film. Oh, yeah. So this is my fifth We did appearance. that one. Did you forget about uh, Seventh Seal as well? No, I talked about Seventh Seal. I okay. we just didn't do we didn't talk about our music episode where we did. Oh yeah, um, 
We did um, Two Joy, Joy. and Autumn Sonata. And uh, The Magic uh, Flute. Magic Flute. There's too many Bergman films, so my brain is just, it's, it's, it's a jarbled mess. Just get, if, if I can just say the production numbers, clearly that's easier. <laughs> that's like best part of the whole yeah. episode when you said the production number. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you were such a huge Bergman fan that you didn't even describe the movies by title? You just went by oh, L182. My favorite Bergman film is L384. <laughs> uh, what is yours? Yeah, it's the use of color in that one is fantastic. Isn't like the Winter Light <laughs> documentary, isn't it like named after the production number two? I think that's kind of funny. That sounds like a Bergman thing yeah. to do. Um, so we've already talked a little bit about how this movie is connected to shame. And yeah, that was a, oh gosh, Becky, that was a great episode. And I, so I've mentioned this several times and I just mention it every single time Lee Ullman comes up is that I met her once. (laughs) And I will be eternally jealous for that. Yeah, and I really wanted to take out my po- the episode of Shame because the image is her in the film. That was the episode image. I really just wanted to show it to her and say, look, I liked you even before I met Like, you know, I'm a fan. I'm a real fan. I podcasted about you. And thank God I did not do that. <laughs> I'm not one of those fake fans. I'm a real fan. <laughs> <laughs> but I still think of that whenever I see her. And, and I think she's wonderful in this film. I mean, this... Yeah, no, the, this film has all so many of the great things that I love about Bergman and, and that we've talked about before. And, um, yeah, it's just it's it's more of the good stuff. Uh, so, Becky, I was thinking we could kick uh, – I, I think the way to start with Passion of Anna is to just launch into where – where this film sits in Bergman's filmography and, um, and, and sort of in the – broader terms like in his personal life and where he is with all of that do you want to give a little context about that dave can chime in and then we can talk more specifically about about the film sure uh so yeah this this film was recorded after or filmed after he did the right which we did for tv which we covered on a wrong real episode two on a performer episode um uh and he, this is, I guess, so shame didn't do very well for him. It wasn't a terribly successful. And he was sort of working under the pressure um, that this next film, this uh, theatrical film, be comprehensible, he has said. Um, but he struggled a lot with the, that, too, because this, this movie sort of was a dream that he had. And then he talked to Lee Volman about it and they tried to develop it together. And he changed it a bunch of times. Um, and I think most of the people in the movie, the actors um, and even Bergman, weren't too happy with the movie. And then later on reflection have said that they uh, appreciate it more. Um, but, uh, Bergman was with Lee, with Lee Volpin. He had been dating her, uh, since 1965 and he broke up with her officially in 1970. But on this film, um, he, they were in the, in the midst of breaking up. So it was a hard, hard movie for him to make. He was um, having a lot of issues with her and they're breaking up. And then there's also, it's interesting, there's a scene in the movie where there's like an improv scene at a dinner table and Lee Ullman kind of starts talking about her character and how uh, she really believes in the truth and you should work really hard. And she was really talking about Bergman there and she was pissed off at Bergman. And apparently it was this really long scene and Bergman was really annoyed by it. But she was doing it to try to talk to Bergman (laughs) 
and it's hilarious because part of the part of it is in the movie. Um, so there was just a lot of just interesting things happening on the set. And then also Sven Nykvist and him went to um, fought a lot on the making of this movie because this was the first movie they made in color after all these women. And then just they were trying to strip some of the color out. And it was um, just things weren't working out the way that they wanted to. They had a lot of poor results. And, um, you know, the, the color does change quite a lot. It was like too pretty when they filmed it. And when they went back, they tried to strip some more different color hues out of it. So it just was a and also there was the um, an assistant photographer who also worked with Bergman on some other films who was like really annoying to Sven and Bergman at, during the f- making of this movie. He called both of them dictators. And uh, it was just like the, the making of this movie was really hard on Bergman. And we'll talk about just how different this movie is. It's just very free form. Um, it's kind of uh, interesting and he throws a lot at it. Um, uh, but he was in a place sort of where... Um, he just was kind of disillusioned with working for the Royal Dramatic Theater. Um, he was the head of the Dramatic Theater for, since 1963, and he left in 1968. And it just, like, he hated it. He hated doing it. He did it for three years, and he worked essentially from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. And he said that... Um, it was 10 months out of the year where there was no place left for demons and dreams. <laughs> so he just like that working on that theater during the 1960s sort of killed him. And so he just really wanted to do something different with film. Um, and, 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 and that's what he was doing with this movie, just trying to do something very different. And that's where he was in his life. But as I said, there was a lot of factors like he was dealing with this breakup. He was trying to do new, do new things. Um, he had a lot of fights with his chief cinematographer so there's just a lot of interesting history behind the making of this movie and really what the end result ended up being well he was Bergman was suffering from stomach yeah. ulcers as well mm-hmm. I think he said that Sven Nykvist was experiencing vertigo so I don't know if that would necessarily be connected to anxiety or if it was just actual physical illness but that would obviously be very upsetting and then, but then on top of it, it isn't just that he, I mean, we should also remember he was still married to another woman. Yeah. Him and, him and Cabby didn't ha- like finalize their divorce, I think until 1969. And this film was made at the end of 68. So, and then of course, yeah, you, we talk about the, uh, the assistant director, which is in a lot of ways, hilarious in retrospect. Um, basically the idea being that the, uh, film set should be more democratic and, uh, you know, <laughs> I mean, there are filmmakers that actually experimented. I know like Chris Marker and Godard that uh, experimented with basically socialized and communal filmmaking where everybody that works on the film has as much input, say, as or almost as much input, say, as the director. And it sounds like somebody tried to stage a coup and Bergman was like, I don't think so. You're on furrow right now. Like, good luck getting home uh, if you don't want to follow my lead here. <laughs> Can you imagine um, someone being like, hey, Bergman, why don't you let someone else direct this Yeah, he Bergman said it should be a group, a group uh, directorial effort. <laughs> this, isn't, this isn't college. This isn't a group project. No. That's awesome. That, yeah, like, hey, hey this, this movie that's super personal and, and has a lot of your demons coming out, why don't you put some of my demons in there? Which, and of course, that gives the context for the film and shame. And I think Eva Persona has some overtones of this. Of course, we're in the context of the Vietnam War and social upheaval, so... This, yeah, there was a lot going on during the making of this film, and I tend to agree with the critics that say um, the difficulties on set 
did not did not interfere with a lot of the really great virtues of the film. Um, I do not think that this is a perfect film. It isn't flawless, like say like persona, Mm -hmm. but um, there are aspects of this movie that I think are some of his absolute best. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, this, this film, I think I'm sort of in the middle of the two of you because it sounds like John, you just absolutely love this movie. I think this movie is really interesting and I really adore it, but I don't, it's not like one of my favorite Bergman movies. Sounds like Dave might be on the other end of it, but just to go back to, I, I don't, oh, go ahead. I don't hate the movie. I don't hate the movie. I, uh, it is not one of my favorite. Yeah, Bergman it's not one of mine I, I either, but is, I just think there's, it's, I, I I would venture to say it's probably his most experimental. Oh, yeah. I think he's trying out the most things here. Uh, I, every time I watch this movie, I go in being just like, oh, this one again. I'll give it another shot. Maybe I'll like it more. <laughs> oh, no. And I feel bad that we like... like... Oh, I liked it more than I thought I did. Then I think about it like an hour later. It's like, oh, no. It was still Passion of Anna. Um, I, I have it. I, I literally just re-edited my letterbox list. Uh, and I have it just outside my top 20. Which I mean, that puts it that's, literally right that's in the middle ground good. of the uh, the movies that he's made that are the most accessible. Uh, so it's not terrible; it's not fantastic, uh, but I still give it like an eight out of ten, which is still better than most movies. Oh yeah, so, uh, I still give it. I think I still give it four stars out of five. Yeah, uh, yeah, same. yeah. I mean, I think this movie's fantastic, but I, it's just, it's not. I don't like. I don't, I don't love it, um, but for a variety of reasons. But, um, but yeah, that's just different things. So one thing you mentioned, uh, John, about Cobby Lorte was, you know, him and Cobby, their, their relationship was essentially over in 1966, but they got a divorce in 1969. But his whole relationship with Lee Ullman, he, his entire four year relationship with her or five relationship with her was during his whole his marriage to Cobby. So it is interesting that they even had a child. During that yeah, time. Yeah, I know. And, and, uh, and like, Leave kind of left him sort of, like, Leave's the one that left him. And usually Bergman leaves um, his, uh, his wives or his girlfriends for another woman. That didn't happen in this respect. Leave left him. He didn't leave her for somebody else, which is interesting to note. Um, anyway. but Well, yeah, Leave, Leave, but Leave still claims... I don't know when she said this, but she claims that he is one of the two loves of his life. I don't think that John Lithgow is the other one. I think it might be her current husband. But um, yeah, so the, it's it. Uh, uh, Dave and I have discussed this. I'm kind of deeply intrigued by what actually triggered the breakup. I don't think that. I don't think that I. It is my belief that they've never fully explained why they broke up. Which for most people doesn't matter, except these are two creative geniuses whose real life relationships so infused their work that I'm just, it's one of those mysteries that I just endlessly want to know the answer to. Similar to, well, not similar, but there's also a mystery in this movie. I'm trying to segue. Um, there's also a mystery in this movie that I'm fascinated by and interested in, in what you guys take on it. But not yeah, to no, n- not to to keep that transition from happening there. But I think the most mystifying thing, clearly, because if you look at Bergman's love life, he never had a child with any of his mistresses except for Lee Ullman. I truly believe that Lee Ullman was something someone very special to him. And the fact that even though, yeah, a lot of the, he, he slept with a lot of his actresses and continued working with them long afterwards, his relationship professionally with Lee Ullman went on till the end of his career. And, and right. it's almost not like, it, like 
they broke up here. She was still in Cries and Whispers. She was still in Scenes from a Marriage. She was still like his primary actress for a very long time. So their professional relationship didn't seem to suffer, despite the fact that they seemed like they had a very short-lived but passionate love affair. And I, I, I find that so fascinating and probably why Bergman, despite the fact that they were romantically involved for a shorter period of time than perhaps, well, especially uh, Bergman's final wife, uh, uh, Ingrid Bergman, not the famous Ingrid Bergman, the other one. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm losing my own train of thought here in how interesting <laughs> their relationship must have been, especially considering how long they were working together afterwards. Yeah. Yeah, and I th- I was just going to say, I think w- w- the relationship between um, Anna Frome and Andreas Winkleman in this film, uh, it's it fills me with a little bit of fear that this might have, uh, you know, had some of the volume and temperature of their actual breakup. Because um, this obviously, there's a part of me that was thinking about this movie, and Becky, you and I have discussed this a lot, how one of your favorite things about Bergman films is the sick Bergman burn (laughs) and I'm sitting here thinking I'm like oh there aren't that many burns in this film and then we get to the end when uh, when Andreas is chopping wood and Anna comes out and she just lets loose and calls him a parasite Um, so yeah no so there's there is a part of me that when thinking about the relationship between Bergman and Ullman's love life and the the films that makes me really nervous (laughs) it it like adds a lot of foreboding to this film for me and adds a lot of tension so yeah and oftentimes sick bergman burns are done with a little bit of a smile on the face it's it's obviously coming from a from a very interior internal place but oftentimes those burns are taken with no action this one is taken with uh violent action physical and psychological violence yeah yeah Hey, typically you don't get both <laughs> because we're crazy historians with Bergman. <laughs> I just wanted to jump in. This is totally breaking it up. But um, the Bergman did have a child uh, with uh, with a mistress, which was his final wife, Ingrid Van Rosen, um, his who he ended up marrying at the end. Um, his his daughter, the daughter that he had with her uh, was born in between his divorce with uh uh, Gun Groot and Kabi Lorte. So he, so she was born in between uh-huh. those two, and she didn't find out that she was Bergman's kid until she was twenty-two. So Bergman didn't tell uh-huh. her she was his father. But I think when they eventually got married um, in nineteen seventy-one, around the time where he actually told her that he was uh, her dad. So that is, int- I mean, he did sort of, he did have a, he did have a mistress child <laughs> earlier with her. But, but. He did end up marrying her. But he her. ended up marrying the love of his life. Yeah, she ended up marrying her in the end. Her dad. So, so she, he, she, he made an honest woman out of her 22 years later. <laughs> Sorry. That's no, it, no, it's great. It's great. Uh, so, so, yeah, so, the, gosh. I, there are a lot of times where I think about Bergman films, and I think about how he's constantly talking about how directors and artists are haunted. And there's a part of me that thinks, like, come on, man, you are so successful. <laughs> you are surrounded by beautiful women. 
Like your life seems so perfect. How are you haunted exactly? But then no, but then it'd be, you delve just a little bit more into his personal life and you realize like, oh, maybe there are a lot of reasons to be haunted. Maybe he was like deeply conflicted about trying to pursue his passion for film and pursue all of these different things. And on the flip side, like, you know, some of the lives he may have uh, left in the wake, um, or, you know, when he was charging forward. Mm-hmm. So, again, this is just me trying to segue back into the film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how do you want to do this, John? Do you want to do you want to go through what happens in the movie, or do you want to talk about that it's a uh, wise experimental, or about its characters, or, or how do you want to do it? No, let's let yeah, let's talk a little bit about the movie. Let's you know, let's spend a little bit of time talking about the uh, events of the film, and then we'll go and we'll discuss some of the more experimental aspects, some of the themes, some of the things that work, and some that clearly do not. And that's and I I want to say that again, like for. I really love this movie, but the the take that a lot of critics have had, Bergman says that he disliked this movie. Some of the reasons he said he disliked it are silly, but the it's idea that... It's 260s. Yeah, two, it's two 1960s. He's, he's annoyed by how short the skirts are. What a, No, what I think really, though, I think everybody can agree that there are one or two very specific experimental ideas he uses here that just should have been left on the cutting room floor without a question. Also, I think some of the editing is significantly less than seamless. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, I think some of the things he experiments with here and some of the things he takes from the other movies that he's made are done just about as well as, you know, uh, you can do some of these things in film. So, uh, yeah, Becky, why don't you, why don't you tell us a little bit about how the movie begins? Obviously we have to start with the famous or infamous, um, title card, the L one (laughs) eighty two. Yeah, that's how, that's how he starts off the movie. That's the like we how you said that's the the title of the movie with uh, from Spent Film Industry. Um, this movie starts off, you know, just a quick aside, which is hilarious, is um, Wrong Reel had done um, had talked about doing Bergman before. I actually did a Bergman episode with them, and um, the two hosts at the time, um, one of them was Mikhail. Um, he had never seen a Bergman movie, and before I had done my Bergman episode on Wrong Reel, I remember Mikhail mentioning this movie and he had said he just was like really dreading ever he just assumed that Bergman was really inaccessible and bleak and he had never seen a Bergman movie and he mentioned at one point time yeah I put on this one movie at the beginning of it Max von Sydow's up repairing a roof and he said I was like oh and he said the first thing he saw oh god this is this is just not gonna end well and so he turned it off and that was like he was just like I can't and I was so funny because I brought it up when we did um the Bergman episode on Wrong Real later because then because we did that episode, Mikhail had to start watching Bergman movies and he became obsessed with them. He loved them. And he ended up watching like 10 to do the episode when we were only covering two. And one of the things I mentioned was like, yeah, I thought it was so funny that he mentioned that roof sequence because it, this movie doesn't end well. He, it was his, his, um, his, uh, instincts were right. But I just think it's funny that this is the first, one of the first ones he put on and he's like, Oh my God, I can't, I can't deal with this. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So the movie starts off with, um, Bergman. Bergman, uh, is a, uh, is a narrator of this movie. Another interesting, um, 
experimental thing he does throughout this movie where Bergman kind of just jumps in and lets you know how the story is going. He narrates the movie. He jumps in during certain parts of the movie and just tells you like, oh, by the way, these two people have been together for a while now. And by the way, this is what's going on. He like moves the story along. Um, it's interesting. But um, the beginning of the movie, you see uh, Max Foncito's character. He is on a roof repairing it. Um, and um, we Bergman is the narrator saying that he is 48 years old and he lives alone on this roof um, out on this island um, by himself. And we learn later why he is living by himself. Um, he sort of retreated from the world. Um, and then uh, he finishes the roof. He gets on a bike and then he runs into one of the key characters in the film who is Johan. Um, and Johan's not feeling very well, um, and so he offers him some cough syrup, and that happens, and then then he goes back to his house, and then Anna Fromm, played by Leif Ullman, comes in her perfect outfit. I was just, like, mesmerized by her perfect brown outfit, brown peacoat, brown tights, brown skirt, brown shoes, brown purse. <laughs> was And and perfect Lee Volman. Yes. That's also not just her outfit is perfect, but she's perfect as well. Yeah. I just think it's so funny you mentioned the miniskirts because it's so funny what Bergman actually thinks about when he makes this movie and what he's annoyed by because he talks about about how this movie, how there's dated films and there's timeless ones and how he hated that this movie, he said it's, um, is he said, he said it cuts me to the quick when I see B.B. Anderson and Liv Ullman, two grown women appearing, appearing the childish extreme, appearing in childish extreme miniskirts of the time. And he said, I Bergman, Bergman's just being like such a boomer yeah, and he's, in that when he says he that. It. It's just so this, ridiculous. He thinks this film is dated because they're wearing miniskirts. And he says, he even says, like, I seem to remember putting up a weak resistance, but when confronted with the power of two women, I unfortunately gave in. <laughs> it's like the whole movie is just like the worst because it's just over because of these skirts, which you don't, I mean, I, it's I, so funny because it's not, it doesn't seem very like 60s at all to me. And I, I think she looks adorable in her little outfit. But she introduced herself. If he thought, Go ahead. Sorry, if he thought that was dated, I want to hear how he explains the hippies in Face to Face. That was still to come, Dave. That was still to come. But no, I, Dave, I know. I'm sure that he thought this after he made Face to Face, though. I love Becky talking about the roof because of a few things. First of all, isn't it true that whenever you see somebody working on a roof in a movie... All you think about is, oh, my gosh, they're going to fall. <laughs> Every single time I watch this, it's the same thing. I'm like, oh, my gosh, she's going to fall. And, uh, it's, and then it's, it's similar to any time you see someone chopping vegetables and not paying attention. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. But then the other thing that happens in this movie, and this is more of a Bergman thing, is he looks up. Uh, 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 the Andreas character looks up and he sees the three ominous sons, but really it's just, it's another example of Bergman using like oversaturated light to imply that it's like nightmarish, even though it's filmed in the fall, it still has that same look of like, say the dream sequence in wild strawberries or the sequence in sawdust and tinsel, uh, where it's just nightmarishly bright and, there's also, for anybody that's watched a lot of Bergman films, like that comes in immediately. Mm -hmm. Is that what you took away from the beginning, too? Well, he he clearly uses uh, a rare Bergman special effect in order to add the sun because the sun literally fades away and you just see it's a, a dreary uh, 
look at the sky, but Bergman's the only filmmaker out there that literally makes this, the sun look scary, just like, oh, I can't wait till nighttime so this harsh light goes away. And it's probably the one thing he was thinking, like, if I was up on a roof, what would be the thing that's bothering me most? And said, I'm high up and that there's nothing to shield me from that bright light of day. And that's what Andreas is subjected to as he's up there. Becky, when Anna goes and makes the phone call, I do you get a chuckle when when Andreas pretends to leave her alone in private and instead he secretly stays and listens in? Uh, I, I don't really. I think I'm more like horrified. I'm like, I cannot believe that he is he's jumping on her. But I mean, he doesn't know. I mean, I think he just is so curious what's going on. And I guess it can be kind of funny, but it's actually, I then I think I love how I did think it's kind of funny though when he tries to leave because after she starts crying and he's like, oh God, this is way more serious than I thought. He's trying to like, I gotta get out of here. I gotta leave. Um, Cause I don't think he thought it was going to be something really, um, you know, dramatic uh, or controversial. So he tries to, he tries to get out and he does. He successfully gets out of there before she finds out that he has been listening to her phone call. Doesn't stop him from looking through her purse later after he knows that this lady <laughs> has some problems. People just love when it comes to Bergman films, one of the things people love doing, people love breaking glasses and people love to read other people's letters. It's like, oh yeah, yep. it's just one of their favorite things to do. Becky, so then after after Anna leaves, we get our first example of one of what I think is Bergman's least successful, <laughs> uh, 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 you know, sort of avant garde, um, uh, not a special effect, but something that he introduces into the film, where he actually interviews the actors about their character and the first one is Max von Sydow. How effective do you think these intercuts are? Uh, I don't really like them. I don't think they're very effective and I don't think the actors really thought so too. It was interesting to, it is interesting though to see them talk about later about what uh, they thought about them. They were just kind of curious about, okay, I'll talk about, talk about my characters, but just also interesting to hear what they, how they feel about their characters. It's so interesting. Like Lee Volman really thinks her character is just this amazing person who just wants to do everything moralistic. And you can also think of her character as just like the worst because there's so many levels of her character that could be just so horrible if you think about some of the stuff that she's done or what she is really represents. But also it's interesting because when he asks, so all of a sudden Bergman's interviewing Von Sydow and it's like take four and he interviews and he interviews Max Von Sydow and he asks him what he thinks about his character. So Max, talk, Max talks about his character but he mentioned some things about his character that haven't been revealed yet, um, like how he has a failed marriage and legal troubles. And that's not really, uh, we don't really know about that until later in the film. So it's interesting that, again, that he puts that in there. Um, and then how Max talks about that it's difficulty, it's difficult for him as an actor to try and express this character's lack of expression. So these, I think these act, these actors were really, I think, really believed in their characters and they're really saying what they thought of them and and like bb anderson really comes up with like a whole alternate life for her character so it's 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 really fascinating insight into these actors and and what they how they feel about the character and their process um so it's interesting like i it's definitely interesting um but i don't think it works um as a whole for the feature what do you think i'm i'm gonna say two things right now about the interview portions of this film First, the first time I saw this movie, it was free on Amazon Prime, and the quality was so bad it looked like it was filmed on a Game Boy Color. And when the first interview popped up, I thought, 
did did someone mess up? <laughs> is this the special features now playing here in the middle of the movie? But no, that's the way Bergman wanted it. And the second thing I'm going to say, and I thought this when it's like take four, is this candid, uh, unscripted responses from these actors? Or did Bergman write out these interviews for them as say this about your character simply because expositional information about these characters is revealed during these bits, yeah. things that are not in the movie itself. So that's the cynic in me wondering how honest are these responses? And if they are completely honest, okay. If it's scripted, it feels quite indulgent to uh, be like, oh, how do you feel about this character? I don't know. It... it does not work for me at all. Mm-hmm. I think it's unique and interesting, but uh, I, I think that the movie could be improved vastly just by cutting these out. Do you think... Uh, so, no, Becky, going back to what you were saying, it sounds like at least leave Ullman. Now, the problem, though, is that with both Leave and Ingmar, you have to sort of take whatever they say in their interviews and in their biographies with a tremendous grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Like, I think I've definitely just read, just listening, for instance, Ingmar Bergman described the first time he met Lee Volman. He gives like four different versions of the first time they yeah. met. And so you just, nothing that I, Lynn Ullman actually wrote about this in her book. And she said, you know, it's really difficult having been raised, or having been um, raised and, and sired by two parents who, it seemed like their professional job was to lie about their own lives. And so we still have to cut through that. But it sounds like at least Liev Ullman claims that her version was unscripted and that she was talking about Bergman. And there's a part of me that wonders here if, if uh, Max Vincito isn't also talking a little bit about Bergman because he basically claims that Andreas is this this artist that is hiding out in this island to sort of stifle his own his own voice, his own creative output, mm-hmm. where I get no sense that Andreas Winkleman is an artist, whereas yeah. it definitely sounds like perhaps, you know, that would be one impression of what Bergman was doing when he fleed away to... I mean, obviously, that's not accurate in that, if anything, his creative output uh, was, like experienced a renaissance it was an entirely new exciting stage in his career when he finally got to fura but it sounds like something one could say if one wanted to give a sick burn to directly to ingmar bergman you would say something like this about him this was the last movie he ever worked on with bergman oh yeah yeah. so i'd be totally fine just stopping here and talking about that he is also in the touch filmed after this oh okay okay I swore this was his last um, one, but I didn't think about that one. It's his well, last no. good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, because it's again, his last good one. The, oh my god! No, because the touch was because rough. again, Ingmar Bergman, I think, claims in an interview that this is the last film he did with Max von Sydow because even he can't keep straight all of the films that he's made and you know that some of the accurate facts about it. So no, that's uh. That, and I've always wondered why did Sidow and Bergman stop working together if it was just that Sidow was going to make more films internationally? Or was it because they had some falling out or just, you know, that's just the way that things worked out? I don't know. It, it seems from what I've read that he was just becoming so popular internationally. I mean, like The Exorcist is just, a f- what, five years after this. And he had been uh, asked to be the uh, the role of the... The, the, the pastor, yeah. the reverend in... Uh, Vanny and Alexander. Vanny and Alexander. 
and his agent said no because he would never work for that low of a price. And mm. Von Sydow never apparently learned that he was ever asked to be in it and like fired his agent. It was like a big thing yeah. that he wanted to be in that movie for Bergman. That's true. But who knows what was going on in the meantime? Uh, I love you, Bergman Dave. Definitely seems like. <laughs> oh. I, lo- I love all your history. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, so after the Max von Sydow interview, we cut directly to Andreas discovers that Anna has left a purse behind. And so I'm a, he has to know that it's Anna's purse, right? Because it's not. it doesn't seem like he has a ton of visitors at the house. No. But he still decides to rifle through and read her things. Yeah. I don't know if this, I mean, this is not great, but I feel like a lot of people would do this. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I really think it's a human thing that I think if someone left something behind, people might look into their pur- their purse. I know it sounds a horrible thing. So Becky, thing. you 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 judge you judge Andreas for standing staying behind and listening on the phone call but not for rifling through the pocketbook? I know. Mm. There's no consequences cuz no one would ever know if you looked at the Well, oh, it, <laughs> the other thing is who leaves their purse? Like who women just you don't leave your purse. Like that's just I know she was distraught. But I just don't, I don't know in any universe where, I mean, you have to be really disoriented to like leave your purse somewhere and then not to realize like five, 10 minutes later that you don't have your purse and for her to go back and get it. And also this letter, I'm trying to think about when, and I was trying to figure it out when this accident happened, but was it like a year earlier or more than that? Well, so yeah, so she, so Anna was in the hospital for several months before she comes and visits her friends, Ellis and Eva, for this. And so it had to have been at least, they say several months, but one assumes that she was in the hospital, you know, let's say she was in the hospital three to six months. And then however long after that, before she finally came and visited her friends on the island. And so, I, yeah, I feel like it's somewhere between nine months and a year. And so, yes, yeah, she's been carrying around this note. It seems to me like this note is the I'm leaving you note that happened right before she went and found a husband and then the accident happened. Yeah. Yeah. That's 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 what I got from it. The note is probably the last thing that she has from the husband. Right. But still weird considering the context of the note that she would keep it lying around. But without it, you don't have the plot. Well, also, too, well, it's like if you forgot your purse, you're like, oh, crap, there has that letters in there. Wouldn't you immediately take a butt, like, as soon as you knew your purse? But she, like, went back to the house, took a nap. Like, I don't know. So it's possible she's just so disoriented that. But, I mean, I, I, most women know where their purse is and know if their purse is missing. And then if something that important is in it, would immediately go. So it is interesting that she left it for. But. You could argue the mental state of the character of Anna, which we do definitely find out later, is not 100%. So I could assume that she could, in her mind, that note is not real. That note doesn't exist. If it does, it's a joke. It's not what you think it is. I think there are any number of ways that someone in that state can play mental gymnastics in order to explain that uh, that isn't. Not truthful, because we're presented with a lot of characters that are less than honest in this film. Mm-hmm. So I'm fascinated by this now. So this, I, and I hadn't connected this before this discussion. This is why it's so great to talk to you guys about Bergman films. But so Anne is pretty famous for running around telling people how great her marriage was to the first Andreas. While it's clear, basically everybody knows that it actually was destructive and toxic and all of that. 
But if she, so if Anna's running around saying how great a marriage was, and in some level in her mind she's created this fabricated reality, how bizarre is it that she keeps the evidence that her that it was all a lie on her person at all times? It would be sort of like if I were president of a country and the Russians helped me get elected, and then I just kept, like, a note from the Russians, like, hey, we're helping you get elected, love you, bye, Vladimir Putin. Like, if I just kept that note in my pocket the entire time. So you're saying that when Donald Trump came to my house asking to use my phone with his cane and left his purse behind, I should have read that note? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. so it's just, it's it seems on some level almost, I don't know if it's self-destructive or there's some element of her that is... um, that is really playing with fire here because it's one thing to create a false narrative, a false reality in your own head, but it's a totally different thing to also keep the memento, uh, you know, the memento of the truth, which cuts directly against that. I'd never really put that together before. Yeah. Cause it, you think she either destroy it or she would, maybe she would hold on to it on her person because maybe she'd be afraid if she left it, at her wherever she was staying that someone would find it and the only way that she could avoid anyone from finding it if it's always with her and maybe she, it was too sentimental to, to like destroy it but it's obviously a horrific letter that her, he wrote her so I, I don't know why she kept it but maybe that's why she kept it on her because she just didn't want to leave it behind for anyone to discover it but then at the same time you would go back to that initial thought of then she would never she would keep that closely yeah. guarded and would never be so careless as to leave it behind yeah. I mean, the the simplest explanation is that it needed to be there so the movie could happen. And the other explanation <laughs> could easily be that, and I, 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 it doesn't seem coincidental that her husband is Andreas. She's run into an Andreas that is a bit of a loner on the island. Uh, who kn- Maybe she left that behind because she wanted an additional encounter with him. Oh, uh, I think there's no question. I, that's yeah. how I took it right away. If... And I think this is true both in movies and in real life. If a woman leaves an important article of something at your house, it's because she wants to see you again. Interesting. I've never done that. I've had a guy do that to me before, though. <laughs> so so maybe it's if a man or a woman leaves their purse at your house. It doesn't matter. Gender nonspecific. Yeah, but she really trusted him that he didn't read this letter. Or maybe she forgot it was in her purse. Because also, it's like uh, she's so high and mighty. And even at the end where she's like screaming at him when he's like, axing that those uh the wood the firewood she's like you're such a liar it's all lies when like she's the one that's it's all lies um but she clearly doesn't believe that he's read this letter or trust that he never went in her purse or maybe she forgot the letters wow. in there. psychologically I, I, she really is sort of like the president where she just projects all of her worst qualities <laughs> on her enemies She's doing the same thing. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is a very political yeah, episode. <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> I, 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 I did not help there. No, I, I, I do believe that this character is so outside of the realm of sanity in some regards that she does not think that other people are capable of what she is capable of. I don't think it would cross her mind that anyone would look in that purse. It's just, it's, it's a non-issue. That's what I do. That's not what other people do. Yeah. So I would suggest that Anna is not the only person with a bifurcated psychology. I th- I think, and it's left obviously ambiguous, but I think I think Andreas also has a pretty bifurcated, and I I think it's obvious that he has issues. Oh but yeah. But I think they may go even deeper than the movie makes fully clear because mm-hmm. right after he reads this letter, we're led to the awful experience of seeing. 
uh, pint-sized, the the dachshund hanging in the tree. Mm -hmm. And this is where that other element... So we've already had the ominousness of the three sons and of, of, you know, (laughs) a man up on a roof um, who doesn't look like he's really, you know, there's nobody supporting the ladder beneath him. He's not really taking all the safety precautions that I would want. And he drops, he, he drops the bucket of uh, drops the bucket. cement. I, I don't know what you use to, to, to bond a uh, roof like that. He keeps putting it on sloped surfaces and it keeps falling over. It's like, oh, symbolism. <laughs> but then we get to then the next layer of, uh, of, of unease and paranoia is set up where now we are experiencing the fact that there's someone on this island. And if it, they don't make explicit that the island is Furrow. Obviously, we all know now yeah. that that island is Furrow. But no matter what, you get the sense this is not the biggest island. This island isn't populated with, um, you know, millions of people. This is a small, intimate community. And so somebody going around torturing animals and, uh, and all of that would be, would be pretty upsetting. And that's where he goes next. I own... Uh, my girlfriend moved in and she adopted a dachshund Yorkie. Uh, and so the, uh, seeing a dachshund puppy, uh, put it, put it risk this way is just horrifying to me. And I'm so glad that my girlfriend did not walk out during that oh, scene gosh. because she would have, yeah, she would have had a total meltdown. And so, yeah, what, so the fact that a lot of these things happen to animals right after something upsetting happens connected to, Andreas, I don't know. Becky, did you have any thoughts about that? Did you have any thoughts about the connection between these animal, uh, uh, the harming of the animals and Andreas's uh, uh, psychological state? Uh, I think what I think Berg was trying to say a lot of different things in this movie. I think the animal um, cruelty is just um, him trying to say that he believes that humans are capable of evil and that unspeakable evil and there's no real reason for it and it's uncompromising and he doesn't know why and I think he wanted to put that theme in the film because we know never find out as we'll go through this movie we never find out who is this person who is um, torturing animals um, and I just think that's another thing that he wanted to put in this movie was that um, you know, obviously, Andreas is disintegrating. His personality is disintegrating. Anna's got psychological issues too. All these characters are are have mass and they're revealed to be different people than who they portray themselves to be. But I think the animal, um, although we we could talk about the relationship that he ends up because he saves this dachshund. Um, the relationship, unconditional love he gets from this animal is helpful to his personality. I don't know if it really. To me, I don't really see um, an underlying like thematic between the animal and, and Andreas, just because I think uh, Bergman was uh, really wanted to talk about how there's an evil that cannot be explained um, in the world, and he thinks that humans are the only ones that can can do this sort of evil. Even though he really believes in humanity, like that is like the darkness of man was something he wanted to explore, and I think that's why he put that in this movie. Um, but uh, and it's also interesting about the dachshund too. I grew up with dachshunds. Um, I've had dachshunds my whole my whole life growing up. Um, so I am especially endeared towards dachshunds as well. And uh, it's interesting to give you some Bergman um, to audience some Bergman information if they weren't aware of his history. Is that Bergman is really um, afraid of animals? He was his whole life. Um, all types of animals: cats, dogs, bugs, fish, every, everything. And um, Leave Olman had a dachshund, and her dachshund was named Pet. 
and um, Berg. <laughs> I know she named her. She named her uh, dog Pet. But Bergman overcame his fear of animals because of uh, her dachshund, and the do- and her dachshund Pet ended up becoming Bergman's dog. So when Leave ended up leaving Bergman in the end, and they ended up separating, she left her dog with him. It became Bergman's dog, um, and he sort of called. I mean, he's called that dog uh, motion um, emotion on four legs. Um, it was a big deal for him, and and it's it's even there's this little uh, criterion short documentary that talks about how um uh pet was his companion as he wrote cries and whispers um so he he overcame his fear of animals because of uh this dachshund and so i think that was another uh big deal is is because he had um this dog sort of gave unconditional love to him I, i think he thought that that was the cruelest thing he could show for the first amount of cruelty of animals in this movie was to show a dachshund um in peril and being hung and then um andrea saving him one, what disc is that documentary on? Because I need to see that. I have not seen that yet. <laughs> I think it's on, uh, I think it's, uh, I think it was something that the Criterion Channel did as like a special supplement. I don't know if it's on oh. any sort of uh, DVD. So I'll, I'll have to see if it channel. is. If not, I think you might be able to search for it. Okay, we'll do that. Second, uh, I th- this movie can be very uncomfortable to watch. I love animals and there is a lot of unsimulated animal violence within the film. And, like, I, I don't know exactly how... Uh, granted, the noose around the dachshund's neck is not terribly tight. Still, I can't imagine putting a dog through that because the dog is going to suffer in order to get the shot. Even if it's okay at the end, the dog had to have gone through some amount of suffering. And I find it very... I don't know, very... Uh, there's a dichotomy here in the fact that Bergman is aware that what he's showing is evil. But in order per- to portray that, you yourself, in order to create the art need to commit an act of evil yourself. Um, and another film, to be completely on a tangent here, that, that also kind of follows this method, is uh, the, the Korean film, the Kim Kaiduk film, uh, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and Spring. There's a scene very early on in which a young boy is tying rocks around a fish. And you know that's not good for the fish. The boy is punished for doing so. But it's almost like, but movie, you did the same thing in order to showcase the child did this. I don't know. It's such a weird thing that that fills me with a lot of uncertainty like is there another way you could have shown the mass slaughter of livestock without actually killing them Mm -hmm. and because the sheep look very real and they look very mutilated uh you see actual burned animals uh it's it's very uncomfortable i have to dave dave uh, i'm gonna so i know that the horse that's depicted at the end that was taken from the slaughterhouse okay i'm not exactly sure about the sheep i know that obviously in other films he now he lived on and shot on fur so there were Mm -hmm. plenty of people like if you go to fur today you will still be walking down the street and bump into some sheep Mm -hmm. and so i'm confident that he wasn't filming he wasn't initiating any of those instances uh and was filming that i don't know where the sheep come from i think if you pay close attention to the dachshund shot though it appears like you can't see for most of that shot you can't see see yeah exactly so i'm assuming that he's being supported now granted you're absolutely right. As I'm watching this, I'm filled with a little bit of extra terror because I'm like a meta terror. Like, oh my gosh, how did they actually get this shot? What yeah. is the is the dog okay? But it sounds like mm-hmm. it sounds like Bergman. It, so this this dachshund. Let's just do an entire episode about this dachshund. <laughs> was the dachshund in this film? Was this pet? No. 
It, okay, so it was a different dachshund. Yeah, it's not, oh, this it's is not a, his dachshund. A, a little Gosh, dachshund. no. Yeah. I, 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 it, okay. I, I didn't look in the credits to see if it was him, but I'm pretty sure from what <laughs> I've read, I, there's no mention of him being um, a star in one of his films. I don't. I think it was another well, dachshund. We'll, we'll come back on another episode and revisit, and we'll just focus we on... We should go in the credits uh, and see if it says dachshund, dachshund and see what the dachshund's name was. <laughs> I, I'm checking it right now. <laughs> I need to know. I think it's cute that this Andreas is, named him Pint Size. Yeah. yeah, I do too. This is, by the way, the second episode that I've podcasted on in a row where I've discussed dachshunds because Preston Sturgis features a dachshund Aww. in The Great McGinty, and it's uh, one of the highlights of the film. So Yeah, it's, it's interesting that you and I both have uh, such a, um, a tie to dachshunds. Like, literally, it was that I had dachshunds my whole life growing up. Now, there's some other... There's another... This animal cruelty is human evil uh one version of it but then there's another layer of human cruelty when the island community sort of sets in on uh-huh. sort of decides that they're going to scapegoat one individual which is the johan uh, uh anderson um individual that we've already met earlier in this film and they decide because he's a loner because he doesn't own any pets and he's not close to a lot of people he's the one that is harming these animals um, and so he's made the scapegoat. That's another really horrific scene. And and, and they go into um, explicit information about how Johan was tortured um, by the townspeople um, because they believe that he was the one that was torturing these animals. It's interesting that the townspeople would be so upset about the torturing animals and torture a human um, in the way that they did. Um, they beat him up. They urinated on him. They did horrible things to him. It was awful. And he felt so bad and felt like nobody was going to ever believe him that he didn't do this, that he took his own life and hung himself. And it's really brutal. Um, and so, like, like I said, Bergman does explore a lot of things in this movie, these, diff- these characters disintegrating, but also the fact that, like, this poor guy had to kill himself because he felt like no one was ever going to see him a different way. And the darkness of man that they tortured this guy. And then the, the unexplainable um, evil that uh, that occurs because of these animal cruelty and the fact that you never find out um, who is the one that's behind the animal cruelty. And I, I feel like it's a very realistic element of it. I like, there's that kind of sense of when people get together and they get their minds set on a certain uh, individual being the, the, the problem without any due process mm-hmm. that they can do terrible things to that individual. And despite the fact that there, there's been no trial, there's no criminal charges, they've already decided that this, this is who is the responsible party. There is no escape. There is no escape whatsoever. There, there is no real escape from Johan. It's an incredibly... Uh, there's a lot of artifice behind the letter itself. It seems a little bit unrealistic to be written in that way, but it needs to be written in that way for us to fully understand exactly what's happened to Johan. And uh, no, that that I'm going to say is one of the elements that is one of the most effective, I think, in the film overall. Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I guess, and I'll, we'll just confront this now, I guess... Part of the reason, Becky, why I asked such a, the question in such a pointed way is because since the first time I watched this film, I've always secretly believed that Andreas is the person committing all of these acts of cruelty uh, against the animals. And I think that as we begin to realize how much violence he has in him, 
I it begins to and and when you see him get drunk and pass out, and when you see him go after go after Anna, and I think there's just a lot going on underneath the surface with him, and I think part of it is. Part of the way that we see, the, part of the way that I connect with that is, I've just always assumed that he's the one committing all these acts of cruelty. Oh yeah, it never crossed my mind. I, I don't think that that's. I don't think that he's the one that's doing it. But that's interesting theory. I mean, I, Dave, d- did you I, ever? Did that ever cross your mind, Dave? Or am I totally it's, on it's, an island here? No, it, it is either Andreas or Anna. It's one. Well, of the I, two. I, I think it be, I believe it'd be more Anna than Andreas. I think. But here's Anna's like. Here's the thing. Really I don't twisted, think. I think. So, so the first piece, yeah, oh, Anna is definitely very twisted. I don't think Andreas is too far behind her, though. I just see that, think that we see him, I think the movie is definitely from his perspective, so we see his sane moments, and we don't see his insane moments as much, except for the explosions of violence against Anna. But the, the first act of animal, animal violence, we see uh, Andreas is walking along a path. He sees a man running away, and the, or we, he sees a figure running away, and then he finds Pint Size being hung. Right. Uh, what we know of Anna from that point is that she needs, she requires a cane to talk, uh, to, I'm sorry, to walk, but later in the film she does not. Does she really need the cane at that point, or is that just a ruse so that she can get away with doing things like this more easily? Uh, or is that an unrelated element of animal violence that inspires Andreas to commit worse things later? Is the, oh. uh, could be the two ways of looking at it. So I think it is definitively one of the two. So we discussed earlier how we're a little bit on the fence, uh, maybe a little bit more research is due to try to figure out just how unscripted the actor interviews are. But I think we can all agree that the dinner scene that comes up after this, I think it's pretty well documented that it's one of the most improvised sequences in the whole Bergman filmography. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about the dinner, Dave? Oh, sure. So we have a lot. It, amazing for something that is so unscripted to, to bring up so many Bergman points like religion. <laughs> uh, I Clearly these people, because I mean, th- these are all Bergman regulars here. We, we have Max von Sydow, Lee Volman, B.B. Anderson, and Erlen Josephson all chatting around at dinner time about uh, religion. Just like, do I believe in God? No. Uh, and faith and all of this, all of this wonderful stuff. It's actually a great scene because it's, I think the only scene where we see the four main characters of our film interacting together. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong there? I think it is. Yeah. Because Anna disappears for the, for the middle part of the movie and it's just Max von Sydow interacting with Erlen Josephson and B.B. Uh, Anderson. But uh, it's, it's such an interesting little slice of life almost. It, it feels Bergman-esque, but again, this is one of the only films I think up until this point where we're seeing handheld camera work from Bergman it it feels modern. Uh, maybe that's one of the things that Berkman didn't like about it. It feels very sixties. Um, mm-hmm. No, it's 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 a great scene to to, to really kind of see these people uh, interact like this. I'm going through my notes here to see if I re- wrote down any anything specific on this scene that I can. Uh, get well, yeah, more between into. between the narration and between the Bergman narration and mm-hmm. the handheld camera. The fact that we're on Fura and we're seeing the landscape, I actually assumed because I'd forgotten my filmography uh, chronology. I assumed that Fur document had happened before this, but it's almost as if this movie then informed, like this movie's documentary style, then informed the way that he would do his documentary later. 
It wouldn't so surprise I, me if he filmed for, uh, for a documentary first, or, or for, for a document, or maybe he had been working on it for some time. I have not. No, that's no, one no. Of the ones I have not seen he, yet. Yeah, no, he filmed it in '69, whereas this was filmed at the end of '68. But I oh, had assumed, watching the style of it, I thought, oh, so he's making this movie in the style of fur document. But then the, I refreshed my memory and realized, like, no, that's the wrong order. So I find that, no, that's absolutely one of those experimental stylistic things. I think it's one of his successful um, stylistic experiments that he he does in Passion of Anna. Um, so yeah, Becky, was there anything you wanted to say about the the amazing dinner sequence and you know all the all the Bergman heavyweights sort of uh, spilling their guts a little bit? Uh, no, it's just I think it's just a key element that that shows that his experimental filmmaking with this because that's something that he he doesn't typically do improv. He, he there was a, in Shame there was a sequence outside the cottage where he did tell Max von Sydow and Leave Ullman just sort of improv here, which was a big deal for him to do in any sort of movie up to that point because he doesn't improv. Um so he it was it was something outside the his um what he normally would do and the fact that he had them all just sort of talk he did uh have them do uh a few nights before they had practiced what they were going to say um so it's not like it wasn't like he started shooting it at the dinner table and it was the first time they ever did it so it was improv and what they wanted to come up with but they had um had practiced it a few nights before so it wasn't completely brand new stuff but um and i like i said i was listening to this leave Ullman interview where she talks about how would she uh, when she's going off about uh, Eric, uh, Ellis's character uh, Erlen Josephson? How she just thought that why wouldn't you work and and have a job where uh, you really believed in it? And and she went on and on and on and and I currently it was a lot longer than that. Um, and she was really talking to Bergman because she was mad at him um, because they were going through this breakup. Um, she was sort of talking to him um, and that he was annoyed and that had cut that scene. So I thought that was interesting. That's great. That's great. So what was she what was she trying to say to Bergman essentially? Was she saying, you know, Bergman stop stop whining about <laughs> Yeah, but the I think she also was making? trying to speak up for her character. I think she saw her character as as really like believing like I think she was annoyed that he kept framing her character as if her character was crazy and she really believed that her character was true and right and everything, which is fascinating. <laughs> Because I think because she's playing this character, she wanted it to believe that her character was really moralistic and stuff. But clearly they show throughout the movie that she isn't. So I think in one way she was sort of defending her character as if she was this upright person. But I think another way she was saying, you you really should be only working on something that you really believe in. And she was sort of like poking at him um, just just in, in, um, in his filmmaking style and stuff. So we have we skipped over the fact that um, the reason why Andreas ends up at Ellis's and Eva's house is because Eva has sort of passed out in her car, um, and and Andreas finds her and is concerned that she's you know is concerned for her safety, so she goes and wakes her up, um, and it it begins this it begins the, another theme or motif in this film, which is like people and their dreams and their sleep states and almost beginning to cross the line or begin to make the borders a little fuzzy about whether some of the things that we're seeing are real or whether they're dreams or uh, it just there's a little bit of a limbo there for a lot of it and the first instance I think is when we see Eva 
passed out in the car. And she talks a little bit about how she can't sleep at night. We'll discover, I think, later on why she can't sleep, which is sort of horrifying. Um, Not sort of horrifying. It is horrifying. Um, And I think if that happened to most people, they would have a difficult time sleeping after that. Um, But then, so that happens. But then after the dinner, um, uh, Andreas decides to stay over. And we have the second instance of some weird dream nightmare activity because uh, uh, Anna and Andrea stay in separate beds while they're staying at Ellis and Eva's house. And Anna wakes up in the middle of the night screaming for Andreas, but obviously not this Andreas. It's obvious that she's screaming about the previous Andreas, her first husband who died in the car accident. Well, at this point, have we learned that her previous husband's name was Andreas? I'm trying to think back to the chronology of this film because... Yeah, in the letter it so says yours, thi- Andreas. Gotcha, gotcha. That, I, I figured that might be the case. But there's so much in this film that kind of takes place off camera. Just like, oh, Andreas so and much. Anna have been a couple for, an, for a year now. <laughs> no. It's like, they've been what? <laughs> um, there's a part of me that wonders if that's a purposeful strategy or if that was just the way that they edited it afterwards, but it certainly does, I think, a part of this movie being about memory, being about how we deal with our memories of our past lovers, our memories of the past tragedies in our life, and how we move on with that, our, our previous disappointments, how we move on from that, um, and, and the terror of that, I think that's like a fundamental part of this movie, and mm-hmm. that is certainly, we're introduced to that right away when... You know, she's awoken in the middle of the night screaming at Andreas. And yeah, I think it is a little bit ambiguous. Even if it is introduced in the letter, it's still mm-hmm. the same name. Yeah. But uh, when we look back at it, we realize like, oh, okay. So she is clearly more deeply haunted than she wants to let on to people. Yeah, it's confusing. Yes. It's also confusing that Bergman would choose. I mean, he did it to be confusing to have her husband named Andreas <laughs> and his name be Andreas. Um and he, I remember reading something he wrote, but it was so confusing where he felt like what Andreas became her husband when he was asleep, but in the daytime he was him. And it was like too esoteric for me to handle. So I, I don't really <laughs> go down that path of what this movie is. But this movie, like, it's, it, there's a lot of experimental stuff we didn't mention too. Like when, I don't know if we really talk about what's in that letter, but in the letter, um, Andreas is actually saying, that he that he loves her, but he doesn't want to live with her anymore, and he that he decides that they need to that he's want to see her again. That like he's leaving her, and that he and he talks about, um, but I he's like I know we'll run into new complications, which in turn will trigger emotional agitation, physical and psychological violence. And then they show that that line of the of the letter again when. Andreas is first reading it they show the letter being read and there's like a ticking clock and then during the improvs dinner when they're all talking when Liv Ullman's character Anna is talking about how amazing and wonderful her husband was and their relationship was so amazing then they go back to that letter again which is something again Bergman usually typically do he'll all of a sudden you see the screen fills with the letter and reminding you that her husband said that that there was physical and psychological violence. So it's reminding you that she's lying, even though she doesn't realize she's lying. So they do interesting things. And then um, when he wakes up from that dream, I mean, when he wakes up in the middle of the night, I think he's like, what have I gotten myself into? What is going on? Because she's screaming for Andreas. So, and at that point, the 
story hasn't really moved along very much. So I think as a viewer, you're like, what's happening? What is the story? And I think he's, I think he's, Bergman's trying to so many different things. Like he's interviewing filmmakers and he's doing an improv scene and he's just like doing, he's not really giving you a lot of the story and it's supposed to be confusing. And I just think he's trying so many different things that a lot of the stuff doesn't stick, but some of it does. It's, it's, it's an interesting, like free form type film. And he's doing it all in color. How weird. <laughs> yeah, he's doing it all in color. and oh, Almost all in color. Accurate, accurate. And so I just want to... There are a couple of things that happen after this that I want to come back to, sort of the confusion between the two Andreases, because I have a theory. I, I would call it a stoner theory, but since I haven't, I haven't smoked weed in like more than three years... Um, we can take I a break if you need to. <laughs> I don't think it's actually a stoner theory, but I do have an interesting theory in the, the connection between this film and, and another uh, uh, masterwork by another famous filmmaker. Um, and the, those two things that I, w- I want to tie in eventually are, one, so the next day when Andreas wakes up, he heads over to Ellis's cool-as-hell photo studio, which is set in a windmill, which is awesome. <laughs> And um, and that when they're there, Ellis informs um, Andreas that Eva, his wife, had had an affair with Anna's husband, um, the original Andreas, which, of course, is a little bit of foreshadowing because we know what eventually is going to happen between this Andreas and Eva. Mm-hmm. So um, and then right after that, for whatever reason, I don't know if he's upset about what he's learning about Eva or if he's upset about what he learns about Anna's husband. But Andreas then goes and gets hammered, tries to ride his bike, which is kind of funny, and then starts running around in the snow yelling Andreas. Um, and passes out. Then we see, uh, we see. I think this is the first instance of seeing Johan's violence. Uh, not Johan's violence, seeing Andreas's violence. When Johan goes to wake him up. And for anybody that's passed out because they drank too much, you're very familiar with how angry you can be if somebody tries to politely wake you up because they're like, you shouldn't be passed out in the snow right now. And, you know, that's, that's exactly the- where I want to be if I've had way too much whiskey and gin. <laughs> but no, people get really upset. And Johan yep. looks like, I mean, Andreas looks like he's going to absolutely clock Johan when he tries to get him. But all he's trying to do is like save this guy's life because he's passed out in the snow. Um, it's just. It's clear that I think it's clear that Andreas is a bit of a mess, uh, and I think he's got a lot more going on than um, you know than he he lets on at the early part of the film. Yes, he, he that is him uh, letting out some of his demons, and and alcohol always plays a very interesting role in Bergman's films because Bergman did not really drink. It's almost always shown as just like oh something bad's going to happen because someone's drinking now. And uh, this this is not uh, straight far from that. But one thing I do want to mention that I noticed this time in watching this, uh, Ellis's f- photographs, uh, which are categorized by emotion, follow the same naming convention as the Svensk film industry does yes. for their productions. So this is L182, and every single box is labeled by a letter followed by a series of three numbers. So that... Huh. And, and, and Ellis does it in such... Uh, an emotionless way, almost like he himself doesn't feel these emotions, therefore he needs to categorize other people's. It's very voyeuristic. It's a very uh, 
like almost psychopathic way of doing so where it's like I'm above these people because I don't feel these things let me see what your emotions are let me take your pictures it's it's pornographic in a way like I don't know if I'd want to be photographed by this guy because like where is he going to put my pictures what emotions is he trying to to get from me what how is he judging me and I I, I can't really tell exactly I, I think Bergman is kind of putting himself a lot in Andreas's shoes I mean Andreas is the same age Bergman was when he made this film whereas Max von Sydow was really like almost 10 years younger yet Ellis is the one photographing people oh who knows maybe maybe Ellis is supposed to be Sven Niefkis I don't know <laughs> where uh he's he's trying to be like all right I'm gonna take you right now and put it in a box yeah. that is gonna be labeled after a film basically and I'll I'll use it later for something it's it's very interesting and Bergman is famously not kind to his male characters because he's getting out his own insecurities and whatnot. So I just find it a lot of food for thought within those scenes. Yeah, I think he was trying to show that Ellis was exploiting uh, Andreas and having sort of like a power move with him. Uh, so it was just like a weird power thing. Like he's taking photos and then he also offers him like, oh, do you have any money? Do you need a job? I can, I, you know, you can do some stuff for me and I could help you. But it just seems very like he's reminding him that he's in, he has more money than him, that he's in more control. It just feels like uh, the exploiter and the exploited there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think Bergman does relate to Andreas's character there, but I don't know what he's trying to say about being exploited. But does Bergman realize, because, I mean, he's going through a breakup uh, as this movie's, uh, and who knows where they had filmed what during what scenes. But in a way, I mean, you cannot be a filmmaker, I think, without being somewhat exploitive or exploitative of the people in your mm-hmm. life. Because ultimately, you are going to be drawing upon your own personal experiences. You are going to be utilizing those emotions to some degree for success. Is there any guilt with that? Is it compl- is Bergman completely unaware of the connection he's made? I-, I-, I think if it was our main character doing these things, that'd be one thing. But it's Ellis, and it's being played by Erlen Josephson, who's usually, in up until this point, played the role of the male character that is in opposition to our main character, which is, it- it's all very unique. Mm-hmm. It's all very interesting, and it's very weird to see him without a beard. Oh, it's... Because he almost always has a it's, beard. It, it, I know, it's like, it kind of makes him, like, evil, like, when he was in Hour of the Wolf. Like, he just seems... I yeah. get uncomfortable like he's a vampire or something. Yeah. He looks he, yep. he looks so much better with a, ve- a beard. It does. <laughs> well, the, that's... It. By the way, that is an amazing call-out, the categorization using the same um, production number code that Svensk Film Industry used. That's... I'm, I can't wait to go back and watch that scene again. But the other thing is he doesn't just categorize by emotion. He says specifically that he has an entire category about acts of violence, which f- videotaped and photographed examples of acts of violence are so fundamental to this part of Bergman's filmography, right? Because if we go back to Persona and the video, you know, the TV that she watches about the self-immolation. And then obviously in this film with the uh, the execution in the street mm-hmm. is, you of know. That, the famous photograph. I, I can't remember the name yeah. of the general that's being shot. But but that imagery is so is so important to this time. And it's it's so, you know, etched in everybody's memory from this time. And so the fact that I think Ellis Ellis is sort of glibly photographing acts yes. of violence Maybe he's the and, one and torturing categorize them and taking photos of it oh gosh oh wow you just you just you just slam dunked 
on my theory that it's Andreas. I still think it's either Andreas or Anna. I, I <laughs> that think was Ellis. Great, Becky. <laughs> It's I, I it, it's a great observation, but I I'm disagreeing. I think Ellis is not the uh, is not one to create violence. He only observes. See, I actually I, I truly think I don't I don't think it's any of them. I think it's someone off the on like I don't think it's any of them. But um, I just think it's unspeakable, like unknown, like evil person. That's that's what I believe. But I just think I never th- hadn't thought of it maybe being Ellis. I think it's I I think it's more likely Ellis than it would be Andreas. I really don't think it's Andreas. <laughs> Yeah, but I think I think Dave Dave's counterpoint is is accurate too. Ellis is the observer. Yeah. Ellis is the guy that knows every that his wife is having affairs, and he's really secretly angry about it, but he doesn't do anything about it. He's the guy that photographs and is sort of removed. Yeah, he's passive and aggressive. observing everybody's. Yeah, he's he's passive aggressive. He he views himself a little bit as a god. You know, he's the, yeah, he's just, a, he's a, vo- he's like a Hitchcock voyeur. Yeah. Type. Well, he's super um, passive aggressive later when he calls Andreas and it's like, hey, my wife's not home. Could you give a call and check on her? And he like totally knows it's like, what's going on. It's like there's nobody else on the, there's mm-hmm. nobody else on the island, Ellis, and you know it. <laughs> you know exactly where she is right now. Yeah, exactly. Totally passive aggressive. So... I think one of the scenes that I really love in this movie, and it's one of the most exciting uses of color that Sven Nikvist does, the scene where B.B. Anderson, the scene where Eva comes and visits um, uh, visits Andreas at his house when Ellis is out of town on business, I think that r- the 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 scene in red and then when the lights are moved, I think it's just so beautiful. It actually reminds me a lot of the the cinematography in winter light you know when um Gunnar Bjornstrand is standing next to the window and the light changes I just think it's so beautifully shot and that was the first thing that popped out at me the very first time I watched this movie is this sequence with uh with Eva and and Andreas I don't know Dave did you do you do you have as much love for this sequence as I do I honestly, despite the fact that this is lower on my list of Bergman films, I think it might be up near the top in terms of cinematography, uh, in terms of the beauty of how it looks and the ugliness at the same time, the beauty in the ugliness. And just that shot, it's like sunset and there's just this red light uh, bathing them. And uh, one thing that I always like in films is how you can sometimes capture that very natural light. And as the sun goes down and we see these characters almost in darkness, but just enough light to, to make out the features of their face and still for them to be photographed so well and naturalistically that this scene, it, it could, it's almost the centerpiece of the movie despite the fact that neither of these characters are the titular character. Uh, we see far more, uh, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for here? Sensuality between these characters than we ever see between Anna and Andreas. And and I think that there's there's a lot of love almost given towards B.B. Anderson's character and towards her as a person mm-hmm. within these scenes. It, it's it's true emotion. Maybe we're maybe we're doing this to see like oh this is a healthy person. This is a person with a healthy emotional response to the things going on in their life. They too have experienced tragedy, yet they still are working through their demons. But they are not a violent person. There's still love and sensuality behind the person. Their soul is not damaged by this. And maybe that's what he's going for in photographing it so gorgeously here. And I, I honestly could go back and watch this scene over and over and over again. Uh, because it, it's, the least, it's the least violent. It's the least dark. Even if there is a very dark uh, 
piece of information uh, is it given in this scene or is it given later in the photo studio no. when she talks about when she talks the, uh, about losing her baby yeah, yeah it's, it's there it's after i think they're right before they sleep together or after they sleep together yeah so it is within this yeah. this overall scene okay it's very easy to kind of get confused as to the chrono- uh, chronology with this because it is so free form it does not follow like a beginning middle end plot it's just kind of goes but uh yeah, Becky, the way that I was thinking about, so, yeah, so essentially there's the fr- there there's a red half and a black half to the scene. The red half is when Eva first shows up and she's inside the house, and so you're assuming it's right. I'm always assuming it's Twilight, and so they're chatting and they're dancing and, and you know, they're having fun. But then Eva, I think because of the wine and because she's so comfortable around Andreas at this point, she says she needs to go to sleep. Now, as we know, and we've already discussed, She's an insomniac. So this is actually quite a compliment. And then again, Andreas, his gentle side comes through and he brings pint size over to her and says, here's a, uh, here's a, here's a water bottle for you to sleep with. And it's actually a very sweet moment. Mm-hmm. But then she wakes up and then it is another beautiful sh- And now it's, now it's being filmed in extremely low light. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she says the light in here is very gloomy. It's very dark. And then yes, I, do, I and I actually don't remember if it's I don't remember if it's postcoital or foreplay, which it, neither one of them make a whole ton of sense. But she has this amazing monologue, which seems almost as if it's like a monologue that should be paired with one of her monologues from Persona, BB Anderson's monologue, where she explains what happened to her during her pregnancy, is harrowing. Um, I just I've watched that scene and paid attention to it and picked up new things rewound you know focused on different things that she says or different expressions just an acting like a a bravada performance by bb anderson it's intimate it's incredibly intimate even if she's talking about something terrible and i think what makes it even more intimate is that you know you're getting honesty uh when our two main characters have so much trouble being honest bb anderson is completely forthcoming with exactly how it made her feel and it's it's a vulnerability that you only express towards people that you feel comfortable with. And our two main characters never have that with each other. Andreas's character is like really shown as like a broken man when he's drunk and he's calling out his name and he's a disaster. And then I think shortly after he's shown as a very thoughtful, gentle um, man when he is with um, Ava's character. So I think that I, and then with um, allowing her to have pint size to sleep with uh, to sleep with her to help her fall asleep, and I think the every everything is shown very lovingly towards Ava with the colors and the lighting. And actually, um, Mark Gervais, who did the commentary track for this film for the MGM box set, he's like a he also wrote a book about Bergman. He talks about when he asked he asked he once he talked to Bergman and interviewed him and called this film pessimistic and Bergman said, "Well, what about this?" and he's talking about he said, "What about the interview with BB Anderson?" There's the a scene later where he interviews BB Anderson and she talks about her character and he changes the light on her character at the very end when she talks about mm-hmm. how her character will learn to um to maybe if she if she ended up teaching people who were less fortunate than her that she could learn to be a better person and the light shine of changes so Bergman saw that as more like uh she was uh the the optimism shown through light there and I think through the scene and um I think he wanted to show that Andreas was a good person and so was Ava and the fact that like when they when they leave when uh Ava leaves the house Andreas gives her the dog 
um, which was the only unconditional love he has had at this point. Um, he had a really messy um, divorce. Um, he doesn't feel connected to really anyone, but he really feels connected to her. And he gives her this love by giving her the dog. So I think it shows a lot about him as a person. But I think Bergman, it's interesting when we talk about him being uh, like, did he really plan these interviews and uh, these uh, with actors? Because it, it is interesting that he calls he calls attention to B.B. Anderson's interview as an actress when he changes the light as being a part of the film that's optimistic. So maybe he did plan that. Um, but that that's how. That's how I sort of see uh, these scenes. And I, I looking through my notes here, um, after they sleep together is, is when Ava talks about how she was pregnant and, and how they gave her too strong of a dosage um, to help her with her sleep that ended up killing her baby, um, which is really devastating. Um, which is just particularly devastating because if you're not sleeping when you're pregnant, perhaps it's because you're having anxiety about your safety, about the safety of the baby, all these other things. The fact that... Some the fact that the thing that is making you nervous gets triggered by by your nervousness is like the ultimate. I mean, that's just so horrifying. I think, um, and so it is no surprise that she has a difficult time sleeping after that. Who would who would want to go to bed? Um, at the same time, though, every Bergman film has at least one character who's an insomniac. <laughs> so it fits. It fits that it would be her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, we do begin to get a sense. So it is great. So you have this loving romantic relationship short-lived between Andreas and Eva. And then we basically jump right to Anna and uh, <laughs> Anna and uh, Andreas have been living together for a year. <laughs> and we actually discover it. We discover it because we go back to Ellis and um, Andreas taking photographs in his in his windmill studio. And uh, Eva says, hey, you know, I'm not jealous. I'm not angry that you've been living with Anna for a year. And it's like, what? Or, or that you guys have been together. I know you're together and you're, you know, spending time together. And, and yeah, and it just jumps to them being together for a year. And you realize pretty quickly they are in a very loveless relationship. And if anything, it's almost it does. It feels toxic right off the bat. And part of it is the things that happen between them. Like when uh, <laughs> when Anna goes to choke um uh andreas or when she smashes the chessboard oh, yeah just a smile which, on her face which, let's be let's let's be real it's messed up now everybody has smashed the 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 uh game board before right like if you're playing monopoly oh yeah like when i was a kid i threw the through the board game when i was a kid because i was losing. yeah that's what i was about to say yeah everyone's done it as a child <laughs> but not chess chess yeah, no. is like that is not a game. like it is so intricate and there's so much going on and you're super involved in it. You do not just throw the chessboard. That's <laughs> that's that's one st- that's one step too far. Um, but then right off the bat, it's you know they're watching they're watching the scenes from Vietnam and a bird crashes into the house in the middle of the night. In fact, they even remark like, "How did that? Why did that? Why was that bird flying around in the middle of the night?" Um, and you just get the sense that there's violence. Within them, within their relationship, as well as it, you know, being manifested in the external world, sort of reflecting what's going on in that house. And uh, one thing to to give points towards Andreas being the the perpetrator of animal violence, he then kills that bird to put it out of its suffering without any uh, emotion or any second thought. Well, Anna tells him to. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, and he's doing it to keep to help to put it out of its misery. See, I 
Andreas. Yeah. yeah. I still believe See, in you, Andreas. <laughs> I would I would struggle with that. I would struggle with that action. But yes, Anna does tell him to do so. <laughs> yeah, just kill it. And okay, he does no so. Problem. I don't know. It's Yeah, I, I wouldn't I, just I, be I find... able to someone to kill it. I'd be like, sure. Uh, that yeah, I would have yeah. um, an issue no. doing it. <laughs> and I, I find it very interesting not to continue going on tangents, but like I feel like within this movie there are seven plots that would have made for equally interesting, if not maybe better movies. And I think that uh, 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 Lars von Trier definitely is a Bergman aficionado. Melancholia seems very similar to a lot of the themes going on in this movie. And I think perhaps a more interesting movie could have focused strictly on Anna and Andreas's relationship, especially as it unfolds and Andreas begins to realize that maybe the woman that he's living with is not mentally all there and that she is someone dangerous to be around. But that's not exact. That's just a, a theme within the movie itself, not the whole plot. You know, it's funny. My so I've been reading a lot about this movie. And oh, did uh, I say melancholia? I meant Antichrist. Oh, okay. Oh, that's Antichrist. A, um, so I've been reading a lot about this movie, and there's a lot of focus on how Anna is messed up, and and there's clearly a lot of signs of violence from her. But I find it interesting that there isn't as much discussion of how dangerous Andreas is. And my girlfriend came out and saw the end sequence when Andreas snaps and goes after goes after Anna. And she said, basically, she was like, whoa, whoa, why is Andreas claiming that she's crazy? It's, you know, Anna isn't the crazy one. It's Andreas. And I'll tell you, that has kind of been my take on it as well. Clearly, Anna has her own issues probably you know has probably harmed her husband and inadvertently harmed her child as well but she isn't the only one that you know has this capacity in her and so i think that i think it is interesting that we a lot of the writing focuses on anna and her nastiness and i think downplays a little bit of andreas's um but before we get to that point we have one of the what I think is my second I don't know if this is my second favorite sequence or it's just in my top two between this and the B.B. Anderson sequence um, uh, uh, with the beautiful lighting at Andreas's house. But the dream sequence that connects this film to shame, I absolutely love. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. Yeah. Um, and you and I spoke about shame, Becky. What do you think of the dream sequence and. And the connection with Shane and all of that, like, do you do you, do you like it? What do you think it means? All that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think he was just trying to maybe connect them to like that they were like a connected film that they were somehow in, like in a way like he said that um, shame ended and like and like. Uh, the, it, it continued in her dream. So, uh, like, if you see the end of shame, they're on a boat, and you think that, well, nothing's good's going to come of it. They're going to die on this boat, and then it continues in her dream. So, I think I think that's pretty cool. Um, I don't know if it says much other than 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 that. I think he just wanted to have some sort of connection w- with it. Um, it's uh, an amazing sequence. It's kind of cool to see like what, how he would imagine shame to have continued. But also I'm confused when Anna in the dream ends up at the end, like the dream she's running and she sees the two people on the road. Is is she seeing her husband and her son or is that just two people? Yes. Yeah. And No, that's definitely what I took, I took it, it as. It as that that too. feels like dream logic as suddenly your entire dreams uh, switches perspectives because your own horrors in life will haunt you. So even if you're in this one thing, 
you're in this one piece of mind or state of mind, suddenly your own traumas will completely interrupt that and change everything that you're currently experiencing. Well, I know, so I watched it pretty closely um, the last time I watched it, and it seems to me like there, once Anna gets out of the boat and right up until she sees the mother of the man who's about to be executed, that actually looks like it's from shame, as if that was stuff that was left on the cutting room floor. But then, once she runs past the burning, it's actually a burning school bus. I looked up, I have a book from Fura about Bergman and Fura, and it's all these stories from the people that lived on the island talking about when Ingmar was there. And so that was actually somebody's school bus. That was the carcass of a burning school bus that they had exploded. And then Anna's costume is different mm-hmm. than what was in the first part of the dream. And so at that point, I think now we've moved up to, you know, in the film production, like in the in the real world, I think that's the portion that they made during the making of Passion of Anna is mm-hmm. after she runs by the school bus. And then clearly, yes, she's running up to the car and seeing, seeing you know, she's reliving um, uh, the death. Yeah. So it is interesting to note, though, that for the shame portion, the shame sequel, Max von Sydow's character is not on the boat. He no, has it's just Anna. Yeah. So I don't yeah. know if he was supposed to have not made it on the boat. If he was supposed to die, fall off the boat, who knows? Well, well the original the original script for Shame had that still as her dream. So my suspicion was that that sequence happened as a dream. Ah. And then and then they actually take off at the boat at the end. And so gotcha. I, I, I don't have the original script. I, it's only from what I've read about mm. the original script. Yeah. The, uh, I, I just think it's, again, it's just another show of Bergman being experimental. Like it's color and then it goes to black and white. And then it's, it's something so different that he would have a, have two different colors films like Wizard of Oz. It's black and white. And now it's co- um, I mean, it's color. And now it's black and white. And this is a dream. And then this is actually from another film. And um, um, I don't know if it uh, has any sort of logical development in the film. It's just something interesting, uh, assigning the films as sort of a series of films. But um, it is interesting when she is running towards them. And like I said, at the end where she does see her her son and her husband, when she talks about the about them dying and how she woke up from the car accident and how she saw, found her husband and her son. It's really just really graphic. Um, oh, and yeah. Bergman writes, I mean, that's one of the things that's so extraordinary about his writing it is really even like when the scene in persona, when there's that orgy on the beach, like the way he writes things um, are so graphic. And so like, you really feel like you've seen it, even though you haven't actually seen it or been there. And that it's, it's just really hard and 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 I think that you think is I think that I when I first saw this movie I didn't really think Anna was this I think I felt I feel less uh inclined to her than I did before I saw this movie because I I think she's more of uh, a mess and and an evil than I thought when I first saw it but only because I'm like is did she kill her husband did she get so mad at him that she went through a wall and killed him and ended up killing her son too and I just think she's capable of more stuff and then the fact that she's living in this world where she thinks that like oh my life is so great and my husband I had this great relationship when clearly that wasn't the case she's just so deluded um 
And and I think even in the end, when she's in the car and she tells Max Foncito's character, Andreas, that she was there to ask for forgiveness, I don't know if that's accurate as well. I think she's playing him there as well. And also, was she, like, is she in the car trying thinking about killing him too? I don't know. There's so many different things about this character. She's so complicated. It's It strikes me as the kind of the, the mental state that the character's in that the only way to preserve her image of her first relationship with the first Andreas would be to literally stop him from believing anything different by killing him. So that, to me, she did purposely crash the car, not maybe realizing fully the repercussions or maybe that it would kill the son as well. But, uh, I mean, that's what Andreas believes. Yeah, Uh, I think that's what the movie believes. I think that's what I believe uh, based on what we've seen of her. But I could be wrong. I, I do think that this movie leaves quite a lot of room for doubt and a lot of room for interpretation which is in itself a pretty great feat. Mm-hmm. So, something I'd completely forgot about up until the most recent, my most recent rewatching is the f- memory sequence where Andreas yes. is thinking about his first wife. Now, this really struck me in two ways. First of all, gosh, did Wong Kar, did Wong Kar Wai watch this? Because it reminds me so much of Chunking Express particularly because it looks like his wife that he's having the memories of is an airline stewardess. <laughs> and I don't know if anybody else thought that that's what the getup was that she was no, wearing. that is not what I was thinking at yeah, all. Yeah, I totally was like, oh, wow, this really reminds me of Chunking Express. But the second thing is, it's such a, it's such a, we talk about the sensuality of the Eva and and Andrea's sequence, but this is like, yeah, this is even more sensual, and yet the the narration is just the woman saying how evil Andreas is. And so it's this juxtaposition between the visuals and the discussion of Andreas having a cancerous soul that is filled with tumors. I mean, just really nasty, you know, some some pretty sick Bergman burns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that really jumped out at me this time. And I'm kind of shocked that I had, I, had, I had blocked that out of my mouth. Yeah, like, why does she think that about him? What has he done? Oh, yeah. Um, and we just, it's one of those, it's one of those questions that's left unanswered. But the dream, um, the dream sequence in, in Passion of Anna, Bergman also just didn't think, he said in, in that, that book Images, he, he mentions that he thought it wasn't especially convincing um, for the movie. He, I don't think he was happy with doing it in the end, but I think it's really cool. There's so many cool things about this movie, like the improv and the, that's that sequence. And, and then the last shot of this movie, which we haven't gotten to is pretty amazing. That breakfast sequence, uh, there's a part of me that says, Oh gosh, why would, you know, why do they go off on each other? So, so incredibly like there's not enough, there's not enough trigger Mm -hmm. here, but then I rewatched that breakfast sequence it's nasty. They are just like they are just <laughs> looking. They are just so passive aggressive, you know, with the way that they're handing each other the salt and not handing each other the salt and <laughs> buttering their bread. I mean, Phantom Thread didn't have any breakfast breakfast scenes that could like do anything compared <laughs> to Anna and Andreas having breakfast in this scene. It's just they hate each other at this point. <laughs> Am I and, right, and yet, Dave? Do they hate, do they hate each other? Or oh, what? they they. They hate each other, but I don't think they know anything different by that point. I think that they just, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, I live with this person. That's life. Um, <laughs> and it's just so interesting that that their relationship is the 
central relationship, uh, yet we never see the intimate moments between them. We only see the, he, he clearly has great memories of his first wife that left because he's insane for reasons we have not seen. We see more intimacy between him and, and Ava. It's such a bizarre way of doing it. And honestly, that was always something that kind of, I, I almost saw as like a flaw of the movie. It's just like, oh, we're just skipping ahead here? What, did you forget to film something? But no, I think it is honestly to the service of the film and how it does depict relationships that, I mean, Anna is not really in the first half of the movie except for a few scenes. I was like counting like the first hour of the movie, B.B. Anderson's the supporting character. And then the last 40 minutes, Anna has more screen time. And it's it's so bizarre. It is so bizarre. And yet it's incredibly interesting. But I do think that it... it it, this is the third time I've seen the movie overall, and I'm I'm coming around to it a little bit more. Even talking about it with you guys, I'm liking it more. But it is such a bizarre, experimental, difficult film. Yeah, and and Anna's not the central character. The American name no. for this film, he had to come up with. He had like 24 hours to come up with it. So he's like, oh, the passion of Anna to make it more like religious. Ah. But Andreas is the main character. And really, they're all like, all yeah. four of them are sort of equally characters. So... I think it in the in the American title sort of alludes to past, Anna's the main character, but it, I, I think it's really Andreas or all four of them. They're all just interesting and, characters. And the, uh, the the Swedish title is "En Passion," mm-hmm. just a passion. Yeah. I think yeah. So I I made Kelly watch the breakfast sequence because <laughs> I thought it was I think it's so great. But then she stuck around and she continued to watch the next sequence, which is we go back to Andreas chopping wood. And he is not happy, and neither is Anna. And so this is – you always do such a great job of describing this, the Bergman insults. <laughs> do you want to talk a little bit about how Anna lets rip yeah, on – Yeah, I, I – Which, I, by the way – I, I taught – Sorry, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but also – who on earth lets rip when somebody has an axe in their hand chopping wood? I, don't know. She, I think she just is living in her own little world. Like, she doesn't believe that he would read the letter. She's just like, of course he wouldn't hurt me with an axe. I don't know. She, um, yeah, I, I did a whole slide when I did that six-hour lecture on Igmar Bergman. Um, uh, in January, I taught a class on Bergman, and I did a whole slide, a whole uh, part about brutal confrontations <laughs> and how... Uh, his characters, whether it's your a father to a son or sister to a brother or husband and wives, they will. There are several instances in throughout his film, filmography where characters will completely obliterate each other. Um, this is one of them. But yeah, while Andreas is wielding an axe, she tells him that he lied about his marriage and his divorce, and she knows the truth about him, and that he's despicable and a parasite, and it's hell living with him. Um, it's pretty brutal. And then he, you know, like, um, I think he says, poor Anna, you had it so good and you were so happy before we met. Um, but she is like a deluded as well because she talks about like, we, I don't know what he lied about with his marriage and his divorce. They never show that, but she's doing the same thing. She lied about her divorce. She lied about her marriage. Um, and it's pretty brutal. And he lunges at her with that ax. Um, they fight. It's sort of not a very nice Hollywood fight. Like it's really brutal. And her scarf goes flying and it just looks like people are really just fighting with each other. It's interesting. And then they kind of, um, she gets thrown to the ground. It's it's pretty rough. She spit in his face. I didn't notice it. Like I said, I've watched this 
I've watched this three times pretty rapid fire. I didn't notice it until the very last time when I was watching it with Kelly, and she just spits right in his face. Yep. Oh, yeah, no, it's brutal. It's brutal. So Dave, It doesn't I'm, even seem that simulated. Like, Liv Ullman no. looks like she gets smacked around quite a bit. Dave, I'm going to tell you what my stoner theory is, and that's this. I believe that ob- – so we all know that Stanley Kubrick clearly is a fan of Ingmar Bergman. He wrote yes. Ingmar Bergman a long letter. In mm-hmm. addition, it's very clear that the si- that silence informs The Shining. So mm-hmm. my stoner theory is this, is that Passion of Anna also is a heavy influence on The Shining. If it isn't a heavy influence, it is at least such a coincidence that basically we have Andreas running around getting crazier and crazier and eventually takes a swing at his girlfriend with an axe. He's running around in the snow, getting drunk. My theory is that I am totally understanding this film because of my understanding of The Shining. And my belief in connecting it again to The Shining, I think the two Andreases are connected. I think that the first husband and this husband, I think that they are so... I don't know exactly how they're connected. I don't know if it's like, uh, you know, leaving BB and Persona where they're like two different sides of the same coin or... So, so in the John Lobinger version of The Passion of Anna, he goes through and finds a picture of the first Andreas and, and it's him. him. And yes. it's him. Oh, wow. Yeah, and <laughs> so the and there are a bunch of different reasons for this, and we come up against so many of them right now. Uh, they end up in a, a similar car situation, and when Anna, when Andreas confronts him and says, were you trying to kill me like you did your first husband? She says, I was just coming to ask you for forgiveness. My belief is that the reason she's asking him for forgiveness is because she's trying to move on from the previous awful relationship, which unfortunately culminated in the death of her first husband. And he is not just a stand-in, but somehow is like actually connected to that first husband. And then finally, when the movie ends, you hear Bergman's voiceover, and he says, this time he was called Andreas Winkleman. I, I, okay, a couple <laughs> things. Firstly, now I know why you reached out to Marcus Pinn. Because I was like, <laughs> what, what, what Shining connections is he seeing here? And I totally can't unsee that now. Secondly, the, the way that I saw that, it's not so much that this Andreas was Winkleman. I think it's so much saying that, like, this is a story that happens over and over again in, in drama. This time, the man was Andreas Winkleman. Next time, it could be anyone uh, in the Twilight Zone. Um, and I'll say also for Becky, and Becky, you were talking about some of the earlier scripts. One of the earlier versions has a, a, a pair of sisters, mm-hmm. one who's living and one's dead. And he also wrote about this, Fur is supposed to stand in for essentially the kingdom of death. Yeah. Those were the original impressions that he had about this film. There's a lot to me here that suggests that when Eva, uh, sorry, not Eva, but when Anna and Andreas come to this island, they're both in limbo. One of them leaves. I believe that when Anna drives away at the end and she's asking forgiveness, she's like moving on. And Andreas just can't. And that's why we see him sort of obliterated with that, you know, that optical printer zoom. I, I'm guessing, Becky, that you did not see <laughs> you did not see my stoner version of this film. So what are some of your how did you interpret some of those things that happened, some of those experiments that um, Bergman puts here in the end? Um, 
So I, I, I love, I just think that the story is talking about the disintegration of Andreas's character. And at the very end, he actually does disintegrate. Like he's, he can't, he, he leaves the car, he walks back and forth. The camera just zooms, 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 zooms. So he can't see anything anymore. And the whole image disappears. So I just think he's, he just, cause he doesn't know where he's going. He's, running walking in circles and he disintegrates i think it's just his way of saying this character disintegrates um it's also interesting um which when i first saw this movie i thought anna was also the one that killed the animals because they keep showing that thing on her on her on um there's like an animal being held by a noose like it's hanging from her from her rear view mirror and it keeps twirling around just like the dog was in the beginning oh so i remember when they keep showing that and they keep cutting to it i'm like is this like showing that she's the one that did it and he's going to realize that she's the one that tried to kill his dog, his eventual dog. So I thought that was weird. And then, of course, this is the first Bergman movie that ends with the word slut, which is slut, which is the end. I remember the first time I saw this movie, I thought they were like, she's a slut. Like I did, I it was so funny because it just ends and it's like slut. And you're like, oh my God, what? I remember being so shocked. And I'm like, oh, it means the end. But it was just at this point I had seen every Bergman film I could get my hands on um, when I was like 25 uh, on VHS and DVD up to this point I saw them in chronological order and up to this point there was never a movie that ended with uh, the the end in Swedish before so it was really jarring for me um, but uh, back to the axe thing it's interesting because uh, Bergman's favorite film is The Phantom Carriage and there's a scene in The Phantom Carriage where David Holm the character um, breaks down a door with an axe um, to get to his wife which um, a lot of people thought that Stanley Kubrick was inspired by um, from that scene to put into The Shining but I think Bergman may have been inspired by the scene of the movie that he saw is his favorite movie he saw it every year of his life maybe he used that because he's going after her with an axe from that so maybe Bergman was inspired inspired by Phantom Carriage and um, Stanley Kubrick was inspired by Bergman all from the same movie which is interesting uh but uh, I don't know why they, they, they show, I, I haven't seen anyone talk about it or write about it, but it is interesting that I don't know why Bergman focuses on that animal being spinning in a circle just like the dog in the beginning of the movie on the rear, on the rear view mirror. I think that's weird. Um, it's interesting. I, I think you could say, because that is a point in the film in which tensions are so high that whoever was committing these acts of violence was doing so as a means of trying to manage their uncontrollable emotions. Yeah. Yeah. So I, 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 that's why I thought of at the end, I thought it was another experimental thing that Bergman had done. Like I said, he's improv. He interviews his actors. He goes to black and white. Now he's having a character completely disintegrate on screen, sort of like persona when, when the, the film disintegrates. Um, it's just pretty cool. Like he just tries a lot of different things. Like it's very free form. It's an interesting movie. I really think it's cool. I think some things work and some things don't, but it's, it's interesting enough that it's worth seeing. And there's a lot of stuff that really works. So I think that's why I think this is a film that I really enjoy. I feel like not enough enough people have analyzed and discussed this movie. And I think, I think right here, you guys have made a, uh, like a worthy contribution <laughs> to the to the passion of Anna. Um, this is this is not an often talked about one, despite the fact that I feel like a lot of people hold this very high in in terms of Bergman. Maybe for some people that haven't seen as many of them, this might be like a top ten thing. I, I don't know. It's not for me, but I've definitely heard a lot of people, especially on Twitter, speak very highly of this film, and I think it's very modern in that sense. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think that if you really like dark things, this is a great one to check out. 
Uh, I, I think Bergman has better things to offer, but it's not a bad film at all. So, but it's also yeah. another movie that's not appreciated as much. Just like Shame, and that's why we I went to we we talked yeah. about doing Shame um, together, uh, John. And that's also why I approached you guys with this movie because it's so different. It's it's so it is in its filmography experimental. It's got a lot of great stuff, and some stuff doesn't work. Like I said, and a lot of people just absolutely love it. It's definitely you definitely appreciate it the more times you see it. But I think it's worth mm-hmm. doing because not enough people have. Uh, you know, uh, give, celebrated it or di- gave a deep dive into it. But this Becky, is I now think the, the foremost document on uh, <laughs> the passion of Anna. Well, that's what I'm saying. And Becky's valuable contribution about the uh, the twisting the twisting bear uh, on the on the rearview mirror, I think, is absolutely wonderful. And I feel like, yeah, this is a valuable contribution to the Bergman <laughs> literature around passion of Anna which I would expect nothing less having you guys on the show. This is wonderful. Uh, Do you guys have any more thoughts or anything else that we left out that you want to mention about the movie? Uh, There's just one other thing I I did want to kind of uh, call into attention. It is a conversation between Anna and uh, Andreas that we'd already kind of talked about, but how she she just really wants them to take a vacation, hoping that that's going to really, like, help out things and make things better. But, But I think kind of what it's almost saying is that, like, Andreas doesn't want to take the vacation because there is no escape from their condition. There's no escape from the human condition. No matter where they go, they will still be themselves. You, you, you can't change that about yourself, and that's the, his hesitation there. And I, I almost think that's a big part of what this film is trying to say, that no matter what, no matter what you try to do, you will ultimately still be who you are and a, a human being experiencing human things. Uh, and in that you're going to experience darkness and terribleness and there is no escape from that. Yeah. You can't escape yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you can't escape the Overlook hotel because we've always been here. Yeah. Guys, this is just absolutely wonderful. When we, when, when we get together and we write the definitive book on passion of Anna (laughs) and I get to explore more of my Stanley Kubrick Bergman fan, fan theories, and we can talk more about some of the imagery and how Andreas is totally innocent. (laughs) Um, it's this podcast is going to be the nucleus of all that so this is wonderful becky do you want to tell everybody where they can find you um if they want to hear more great stuff about bergman or or albert brooks who by the way also made one of uh one of stanley kubrick's favorite movies oh yeah um, modern Modern romance Romance. uh yeah you could where can people find you you? you you could find me every day on twitter at hwood minotaur um it's hollywood minotaur and um, you can also uh, look, you can find me on, on my website, uh, which is beckydeanna.com, which is, if you go there, there's a list of, um, if you click on a link there, all my past uh, podcast appearances from Wrong Real, from Film Maybe Film, from Flixwise, from a bunch of different podcasts. I think over eight different podcasts are on there. And there's quite a lot about Bergman. So all my Bergman, if you want to hear any other Bergman podcasts, you can all you can go to that link and you could find all of them there. And that's it. And Dave, where can people find you? You can find me at all hours on Twitter uh, at Cinema versus Dave. That is Cinema vs Dave, where I stay up far too late talking about movies. Thank you guys so much for coming on and talking Mar Bergman with me again. This is this is Film Baby Film. Becky, Dave, you guys are the best. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you.